Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. Member, FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health. With their flexible online programs, you can receive the comprehensive education you need to care for your loved ones or step into the thriving field of natural health. Why choose Trinity? Because their programs offer more than just coursework. You'll interact with experienced instructors, connect with like-minded peers, and even participate in optional live events to hone your skills. If you've ever thought about becoming a certified natural health professional, the CNHP program at Trinity School of Natural Health is the perfect certification course. You'll equip yourself with the knowledge and skills to make a real difference in the lives of others. Turn your passion for natural health into a rewarding career. Visit trinityschool.org today to learn more about the Certified Natural Health Professional Certification Program. Go to trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Trinity School of Natural Health. Transform your life. Transform the world. Pushkin. Just a quick heads up before we start. This episode contains a brief reference to suicide. Previously, on Deep Cover. I said, I'm calling about a girl you might know named Brooke Henson. And he said, I wondered when you were going to call. When my son brought her home, I, I knew she was trouble. It was the same Natalie. She was the same person, regardless of the moniker that she was she was using. She had the same flaws, the same loves, the same laughs. I have determined that the woman in question is not our victim, Brooke Lee Henson. Her behavior fits the profile of a spy far better than that of the average identity thief. Back in 2006, there was a woman enrolled at Columbia University who claimed to be Brooke Henson. But in reality, she was an imposter. She was using the identity of another woman who'd gone missing from South Carolina seven years earlier. This imposter, she'd deceived Columbia University, her boyfriends, and many others. It was a hot mess. And I know this because she herself told me, told me all about it starting with the moment that it all began to fall apart for her. I think I got a message from 
Columbia security saying they wanted to talk to me. And I was like, oh, shit. A short while later, she received a call from a detective in the NYPD. He basically asked me if I'm Brooke Henson, and I say yes. And he says, well, why are you listed as missing? And then I tell him, like, I am running from my family. I don't want anything to do with them. And he's like, okay, that's fine. I'll tell the detectives down there. And it seemed like that might be the end of it. But then the detective called back because he said the authorities down in South Carolina wanted more information. South Carolina people just want to double check that you're um, actually Brooke Henson. So I have a couple of questions. Are you okay with that? And I was like, sure. Were you like panicking at all? When yeah. Oh my, yeah, of course. But she was prepared. She knew a lot about the real Brooke Henson. There was a lot of stuff on the internet about her being missing, and I had read every shred of it. The detective started asking questions about the names of friends and family members from back home in Traveler's Rest, South Carolina. She could only hope that she answered enough of these questions correctly that the detective would be satisfied. And it seemed like he got what he needed, but that didn't last very long. This detective kept calling me back and he goes, are you sure you're telling me the truth? Because he goes, I can help you. And I was like, no, 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 I'm telling the truth. And then he would call back and he goes, you know, I know a judge. Like, I'm pretty sure like we can figure this out. Are you sure you're telling me the truth? I'm like, no, 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 I'm telling the truth. Is your like anxiety kicking in? Oh, yeah. Yeah, like sometimes I'll get hives when I get really anxious and my, I'll just, uh, my blood pressure goes up really high and so I'll get red and all of that was happening. That sounds pretty terrible. It was, yeah, it was 100% terrible. All of this is terrible, Jake. <laughs> it's all horrible. Eventually, the NYPD detective calls back and tells her that the authorities down in South Carolina are insisting on more proof. They want her to provide DNA to confirm that she really is Brooke Henson. She stalls. She says that she has two final papers to finish over the weekend and asks if she can possibly meet the detective at her apartment on the following Monday and then take the DNA test. The detective agrees. Like, what's your plan as you're like... Oh, I didn't have a plan at that point. I mean, I was just hoping it would all go away. I'm like, just stupid, right? Like, you know, there's no, there's no plan. Like, I, I can't fix this. I'm just thinking like, what if I miss him? Like, what if I'm not home? Is it, is it a big deal that they'd come back? Or is this like, we don't have the resources for this. And this isn't a big deal. Like, I, I didn't know at that point. She finishes her two papers. And then she kind of comes to her senses has this moment when she realizes that this is not all magically just going to go away, that the police, they're onto her. So she decides she's got to do something. I went to get a U-Haul truck because I had decided I'm freaking getting out of here. And I was going to pack up my apartment. I still thought like I could come, like this is going to settle down and I can come back. It'll be all right. Her plan was to pack up her place, move everything into storage, and then grab her two dogs, Poochin and Odie, and disappear for a while. And so I rented the truck and I took all the money I had out of my account. And I think they probably had my accounts flagged. Um, And so by the time I got back to my apartment, I pulled around the corner with my U-Haul truck and there were New York City cops knocking on the door. And I was like, oh shit. Cause she's too late. The cops are there. So now she has a choice to make. Either A, run for it, or B, just turn herself in. Tell the cops everything about who she really is 
Now, choice A is tempting. It's second nature, actually, because she's been more or less on the run for years. But the problem is, Poochin and Odie, they're inside the apartment. And no matter what, she cannot leave her dogs. So it's got to be B. Turn herself in. So I pulled over in front of a fire hydrant, and I walked around the block. And by the time I got around, they were gone. And so I was like, oh. So I went upstairs, packed the quickest bag I could pack, grabbed my dogs, called a cab, and left. What'd you do with the U-Haul? Left it there. It's not, I, I don't want people to think that me chuckling is, I, I don't think any of this is funny. It's just uncomfortable and whatever. But yeah, I just left it there. That's kind of crazy. I know. All of it's crazy. I was scared. And this decision to run for it, more than anything else, it's what makes this story go batshit. It's the decision that confounds everyone. The authorities down in South Carolina, the Secret Service, the assistant U.S. attorney. Because now it's got them all thinking. Who leaves a U-Haul idling at the curb? Why is this woman running? What is she hiding? Because it's got to be something big, right? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, Never Seen Again. Episode 3, The Imposter. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at t slash now.
Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health. With their flexible online programs, you can receive the comprehensive education you need to care for your loved ones or step into the thriving field of natural health. Why choose Trinity? Because their programs offer more than just coursework. You'll interact with experienced instructors, connect with like-minded peers, and even participate in optional live events to hone your skills. If you've ever thought about becoming a certified natural health professional, the CNHP program at Trinity School of Natural Health is the perfect certification course. You'll equip yourself with the knowledge and skills to make a real difference in the lives of others. Turn your passion for natural health into a rewarding career. Visit trinityschool.org today to learn more about the Certified Natural Health Professional Certification Program. Go to trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Trinity School of Natural Health. Transform your life. Transform the world. This woman, the one I'm speaking to, the imposter, she's gone by many names, including Natalie Fisher, Natalie Bowman, and Brooke Henson. Her real name, well, I should say her birth name, is Esther Reed. And I'm going to call her Esther. That's the first name that she goes by currently. Esther lives in a small city in the Pacific Northwest. We started talking months ago. I eventually went out there to visit her, and she told me that only four people in her city knew her full backstory. Well, five if you counted me. And in this episode, we're going to take a deep dive into her side of the story. Because at this point, you've heard from John Campbell. You've heard his theories, his suspicions that this mystery woman was not just an identity thief, but a spy who seemed to be on the run. And Esther was on the run. But what she was running from? Well, that's complicated. Back in the early 1990s, Esther Reed was a young girl in a small town in Montana. She lived in a tiny two-bedroom house with unfinished walls. Outside, there were chickens, geese, rabbits, goats, and a big garden. She says her dad was a serious man. My dad is very, very, very religious. And so, like, there was no TV in the house. We weren't really allowed to listen to any music um, that had a beat. Anything with um, a drum beat was considered satanic or evil, so we weren't allowed. At school, her father didn't allow her to wear pants. Instead, she wore homespun dresses. Her mom was the fun one, always making up games and telling them stories. When I think about my mom, I just remember her spirit, right, and her effervescence. And she was just so amazingly loving and kind and giving. Esther told me stories where her mom seemed like a magician. She conjured joy, even in tough situations. When no one could sleep in the sweltering heat, she rallied the kids in the middle of the night to make fudge. Another time, the kids were having a water fight, and instead of breaking it up, she dragged a hose into the house and soaked them. My mom was definitely a lemons into lemonade girl, and really, definitely the happiness is what you make of it. Esther says her parents' relationship was very businesslike. Like, she only remembers seeing her dad hug her mom a few times. And it was like that, right up until the day that their marriage effectively ended. Like, the way my dad told her he wanted a divorce uh, is he wrote her a letter. And I think at that point they'd been married 18 years, and he wrote a letter 
I think on a Friday, and he put it in her purse and she found it when she got to work. And he basically said, this isn't working. Um, I would like you to take Esther and move out. And he wanted her gone by Sunday. Esther was 12 when this happened. She and her mother moved out. And life didn't get any easier for her. A year or two later, Esther's mom was diagnosed with colon cancer. Meanwhile, Esther started high school and hated it. Not the schoolwork, she was very bright, and she actually had a photographic memory. It was the social aspect of going to school that was just really tough for her. She dreaded it, in fact. So she played hooky as much as she could. Her mom typically left the house early each morning for work. And instead of going to school, Esther often just stayed in the house. One week, when her mom stayed home from work, Esther had to improvise. I would pretend to go to school, and then we had a part of our basement that was unfinished, and I had a little TV, um, a little black and white TV that I had bought at a garage sale, and I put that back there, and I spent that whole week down there. At the time, Esther felt something was off, but she just didn't know what it was. She knew that she needed alone time to recharge. She described it to me kind of like hibernation. It was only years later that Esther would learn she had a social anxiety disorder. Eventually, Esther and her mom decided to move to Seattle. Esther continued to struggle there, and she no longer had the support of the small-town community that she and her family had known. She dropped out of high school in her junior year. Her mom insisted that she get a job, so she started working at a nursing home. Esther did have a bunch of older siblings, but at this point, the only real constant in her life was her mom. My mom was really the only person I was really close to. I mean, I had friends, but it's very difficult when you have undiagnosed, untreated social anxiety to be friendly with someone, right? You just feel uncomfortable around everyone. And my mom was really the only person who knew I had these issues, and so she kind of managed life for me. But then, when she was 17 years old, her mom's cancer came back. Esther watched her mom struggle for the next few years. And by the time she was 20, her mom had died. I was incredibly depressed. I've just lost my mom. I have no contact with really anybody who's able, willing, to help, um, you know, thinking about killing myself all the time. I did not care about anything at that point. I didn't care about myself. I didn't care about anybody else. I just wanted to die so I could see my mom. So really there was no, there was definitely no future thought. It's just survival. She couldn't hold down a steady job. Her car was repossessed. She didn't have a reliable place to live, so she slept on the floor at a friend's place for a bit. It was during this time that she did something pretty desperate. I was working for like maybe a week, two. I don't think it was two weeks. I didn't, I was not able to work for two weeks. So maybe like, I'd been there for four or five days and then I stole um, my coworker's purse. She had it sitting on like the nurse's station. The purse had a bunch of credit cards and a driver's license. Then Esther showed up at a department store claiming to be that coworker. 
She had added her own photo to the ID. The credit card had been reported as stolen, so when Esther tried to use it, she got arrested. Esther pled to the charges. She had to pay a fine, and she got off with a year of probation and three days in jail. This actually wasn't the first time she'd stolen from somebody. In the wake of her mom's death, she swiped a checkbook from her sister, Edna, and wrote some hot checks in her name. Edna also lived in Seattle, and Esther saw her from time to time, but they had a rocky relationship, and it only got rockier after the whole stolen checks incident. As far as I could tell, Esther's mom was the linchpin to absolutely everything, and without her, Esther's life just derailed, popped right off the tracks, and rattled onward toward the abyss. Esther felt like there was nothing left for her in Seattle. I think at that point, it probably felt like I could run away from my problems, right? Like if I don't, if I don't think about my mom and if I'm not living in Seattle, then it won't be so painful and like maybe I can get over it. So she just left town, didn't really tell anyone where she was going, just kind of vanished bought the cheapest plane ticket she could find, which was to Salt Lake City. She found an inexpensive place to stay, a weekly rental, and she holed up there for a while. But she kept getting these messages from her family, especially from her sister, Edna, who wanted to know, where are you? Esther says, in her highly anxious state, she felt as if she were being stalked. She says one of her other sisters threatened to call the cops on her, apparently just to intimidate her. What Esther wanted was space to hibernate a bit, away from her family. And suddenly, this didn't really feel like the escape that she had envisioned. Because she wanted a clean break with her own past. A clean break with being Esther Reed. And eventually, she came up with a solution. She decided to start using the name of someone she knew, a girl back in Seattle named Natalie Fisher. She knew a decent amount about Natalie. Esther says at some point she had access to Natalie's wallet and saw her social security number. And don't forget, Esther, she had a photographic memory. So she knew some of Natalie's vital information and what she didn't know, she figured out online. She then obtained a birth certificate in Natalie's name and eventually got an ID. And then, on paper at least, she was Natalie Fisher. Pretty bold, right? Not to mention illegal. What's the logic that's going through your brain when you're doing this? I always just viewed it as me using a different name. I never thought I was her or anything. I mean, I I changed my name before I left all the time. I hated the name Esther. So I was, you know, when I was a little girl, I wanted to go by Herford and, you know, I changed my name to Elizabeth or Liz or, so just didn't, my name didn't make me who I was. So I never viewed it like that. I just always saw it as, I get to be me, and, like, she can't find me. She's talking about her sister, Edna, who'd been trying to get in touch with her. But, as I see it, it was far more than just Edna. It was the co-worker whose purse she'd stolen, and the high school in Seattle that she'd avoided like the plague, and the hole that she found herself in after she lost her mom. With a new name, she put all of that in the past, There was no connection to it now, no point of reference, not even a set of nine digits on a social security card. 
Or at least, that's what she told herself. The past, it had been erased. And as Esther put it, I get to be me, whoever that was. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health. With their flexible online programs, you can receive the comprehensive education you need to care for your loved ones or step into the thriving field of natural health. Why choose Trinity? Because their programs offer more than just coursework. You'll interact with experienced instructors, connect with like-minded peers, and even participate in optional live events to hone your skills. If you've ever thought about becoming a certified natural health professional, the CNHP program at Trinity School of Natural Health is the perfect certification course. You'll equip yourself with the knowledge and skills to make a real difference in the lives of others. Turn your passion for natural health into a rewarding career. Visit trinityschool.org today to learn more about the Certified Natural Health Professional Certification Program. Go to trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Trinity School of Natural Health. Transform your life. Transform the world. Esther left Seattle in the fall of 1999, and she drifted around for almost two years. I don't know exactly how she was making ends meet, This period in Esther's life is kind of a black hole. I only have her version of events. She says she worked odd jobs, short-term gigs that she found on Craigslist, and that she eked out a modest existence as Natalie Fisher. The way she described it seems like she was adrift. No purpose, no plan, other than not being who she once was. But when she looked back on her past, it wasn't all bad. There were some things she felt she'd done well, things she felt good about. And one of them was, if you can believe it, being on a high school debate team. Now, you might be thinking, can someone who has paralyzing social anxiety really thrive on a debate team? And the answer, it turns out, is yes. 
those were my people. I just felt very comfortable among those individuals. Plus they were all like little brainiac nerds like me. So it wasn't a big deal. Um, all of my quirkiness or idiosyncrasies that I, you know, hadn't been appropriately socialized when I was a kid. Those things didn't stand out and make me a weirdo among that crowd. Back in high school, when she wasn't playing hooky, she actually participated in debate tournaments. And she loved it. Also, for someone with social anxiety, debate was the opposite of a cocktail party. That's my take, anyhow. There was a strict format that dictated when things would happen. Opening statements, rebuttals, closing remarks. Everything was so clear. Plus, it was also intellectually engaging, she says, that it overrode her social anxiety. For Esther, the world of debate tournaments was a world that made sense. And so she decided to go to debate camp, the Arizona Debate Institute. She arrived at the Twin Palms Hotel in Tempe. Pink exterior, tiny balconies, obligatory palm trees, and a lobby packed with lots of precocious college students getting ready to debate. You take... 120 college students from all across the country that have not generally met before and lock them in a hotel for two weeks in high-pressure situations. It's exactly what you think it would be like. That's John Brushke, the organizer of the debate camp. They would really get up and go to the lectures because they wanted to be at the lectures. Then they would work from like noon till midnight. Um, and then either decide they're going to pull an all-nighter to finish their research or, you know, socialize. It sounds like a nerd's version of spring break. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, Revenge of the Nerds, Tempe, Arizona edition. So this is the scene that Esther walked into, posing as Natalie. John still remembers when he first met her. So her narrative was, I make my money playing competitive chess, um, and I kind of live a nomadic life, right? So when we were trying to get, what's your home address? That was a question we couldn't get out of her registration. John remembers that this nomadic young woman, she was ambitious. She told him that she wanted to win a national debate championship. You know, when she wasn't playing pro chess. So a bit odd, perhaps. But hey, this was Revenge of the Nerds, Tempe edition. Esther's story, it wasn't all made up. She actually did spend many of her days playing chess online. Chess is an escape for me. I would play it for hours, and people would be like, why are you doing that? So she came up with an answer to that question, a lie that became part of her fictional biography. She told people she was a professional chess player, which was a good lie, of course, because Esther knew a lot about chess. She was slowly crafting her own semi-fictional narrative. And she was learning when lying stick to the truth, right? Because as she toyed with the details, adjusting them here and there, she learned the dangers of straying too far from the truth. Like one time, some guy chatted her up, and she improvised a bit too much. And I was like, oh, um, um, I'm going to a tennis tournament. He goes, oh, you're a, a tennis player. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm a tennis player. This was a problem, because Esther didn't actually know that much about tennis. And also, once a lie was out, it spread. I mean, because then once you tell people, then they're like, oh, you know what she does? She plays tennis. And I'm like, oh, shit. You know, like, <laughs> it just, it would eventually get me in trouble. So she quickly realized, better to stick with the chess story. And it worked well. 
At the debate camp, she spun her tail, she made some friends, and she even won an award for her performance as a debater. Afterwards, she started talking to John Brushke, the debate coach, about attending college. In addition to running the debate camp, John was a professor at California State University, Fullerton. He encouraged her to apply there. For Esther, it was a moment of hope and possibility. For two years, she had felt lost, but suddenly, her life seemed to have traction. Esther soon started to make plans to move to California and take classes at Cal State Fullerton. She stayed in touch with her friends that she'd made in Tempe, her people, as she called them. At one point, she met up with them at a debate tournament in Washington, D.C., at Catholic University. And this is where she met Ian Fleischman. You may remember him. He was the handsome young cadet from West Point who became her boyfriend. Esther was struck almost right away by his thoughtfulness. He's a very good listener. You know, sometimes you'll tell people something and, like, they'll kind of listen, but really they're only waiting for their moment to interject. And Ian's not like that at all. He's very genuine. And this feeling, this sense that she had about him, it only grew with time. Like, Ian's the type of guy that would change your oil and fill up your gas tank and, like, check to make sure your tires, you know, aren't bald or, you know, he's just very caretaking. Caretaking. That's something that she hadn't had much of since her mom died. And Esther, she felt cared for by Ian's family as well. She visited the Fleischmans back in Michigan on a few occasions. They were just so kind. And like, I made cinnamon rolls one morning for everybody and super lovely. Like, I don't know if it's coming across, but I absolutely adored their entire family. Esther says Ian's mom, Shirley Fleischman, was an especially lovely person kind and nurturing, just like Ian. Shirley was also a university professor, and when she heard about Esther's dreams of going to college, she encouraged her. Esther says she was actually staying at the Fleischmann's house the night before she took the ACTs. That night, she was kind of freaking out when Shirley gave her a pep talk. She said, you know, you've got to calm down. You're going to do great tomorrow. And I was like, I don't think so. And then she's like, any school is going to be lucky to have you. And I just remember looking at her and like nobody had ever said anything like that to me. Ian's father, Fred Fleischman, was a different story. Esther says that Fred was suspicious of her from the beginning, that he didn't seem to believe her whole story about being a professional chess player. And that at one point he searched her car and went through her possessions. It was almost like Ian's parents saw the two different sides of Esther Reed. One of them looked at Esther and saw the best in her, all the promise of what she could be, while the other saw only the worst, the lies and the trouble that she would bring. And in some ways, they were both right. Esther was intent on going to college, but she foresaw problems. She knew eventually she'd need to provide a social security number. And that might tip off the real Natalie Fisher, that someone was using her identity. And then I came up with a brilliant idea of, I need a social security number that nobody's using. Um, And at that point, I knew you couldn't actually use the social security number of somebody who was declared dead. So I came up with the idea, oh, maybe um, I could use the number of somebody who's missing. I came up with lots of dumb ideas, but this one is the one that I, um, I settled on. 
She searched missing persons websites for a while until she found a post that looked promising. It was for a woman named Natalie Bowman. Esther says she found all kinds of information about Natalie online. Her mom had posted a whole bunch of stuff. You know, she was like, please help me find my daughter. And, and I understand that, right? If you are a desperate mom trying to find your daughter, you're putting up report cards, you're putting up like pictures with her best friend and, you know, whatever you can find. And I was like, oh, I bet that's a social security number. To Esther, she seemed like a good candidate. And then there was the name, Natalie. It was convenient. It would be an easy switch from Natalie Fisher to Natalie Bowman. And so Esther, she just went for it. She would now tell people that her name was Natalie Bowman. Esther says there were moments when she saw how crazy this all was. There were times when I was like, you know, you can just go back and use your own name and stop doing all of this stuff, right? Like you could just go to a new school, apply as you, and stop this because you're not in any trouble. But at this point, she was so deep into this deception. She was a professional chess player, though some had heard it was tennis. She had to change her name to escape a maniacal stepfather, though she told one boyfriend she was in the witness protection program. Her last name was Fisher. Or was it Bowman? Or was it Henson? She was from Montana. Or was it South Carolina? It was a lot to keep track of, all of these lies and half-truths. The fact and the fiction were hopelessly intertwined. And there seemed to be no straightening it all out. Using her new alias, Natalie Bowman, she took classes at Cal State Fullerton. She joined the debate team, made some friends. But if she felt any sense of relief, it didn't last long because pretty soon her alias began to fall apart. Esther learned that someone else was earning money and accruing Social Security benefits under Natalie Bowman's name. Maybe it was the real Natalie Bowman, or maybe it was another identity thief. It didn't matter. Point was, this alias, it was no longer safe to use. So what did Esther do? She went back to the internet, looking for yet another missing girl someone who was still listed as missing, but who in all likelihood was deceased. Like, how much time did you spend looking for her? Before? Oh, my gosh. I mean, it took months to find somebody. I mean, that's why it probably was six or seven months. Why did it take so long? Well, like, I mean, a lot of different pieces have to be in place, right? Like, I didn't—they um, needed to be about my age. I didn't want it to be a recent disappearance because I kind of wanted, like— it to be calm so I could live in peace. Then one day she was browsing a missing persons website and she found a post for Brooke Henson from Traveler's Rest, South Carolina. When you found her, were you pretty certain right away or did you kind of like wrestle with it for a bit? Oh no, I wrestled with it forever. I mean, you're trying to figure out how to do something that's impossible. Esther and I talked about this a lot, how she could justify stealing these identities and how she rationalized lying to so many people, especially to people like Ian and his family, people she cared about and who cared about her. She explained that all of this really came from feeling like her family was stalking her to the point that it felt like emotional abuse. 
but she didn't think that anyone would really take that seriously. So she made up stuff that she did think people would take seriously, like the violent stepfather story. Basically, Esther felt that these lies were the only way she would ever be understood. When I think about all of this, I feel for her. I mean, what a lonely place to be. But I also can't help but think about the consequences, about all the damage that these lies would inevitably cause. Esther eventually left Cal State Fullerton and moved east. First, she went to Boston, where she even took a class at Harvard Extension School. It was kind of like the Ivy Leagues on training wheels. Eventually, she set her sights on Columbia University and New York City. This move also presented her with one more chance to come clean, to dispense with all the aliases and lies and just apply as herself. So why didn't she? I ask myself that all the time. I just, like there's absolutely no reason I could not have applied to Columbia as Esther Reed. Because her true objective, she says, was simply to reinvent herself. Like I had been just trying to start over and like go to school and like get life back on track. And so why Natalie Fisher? Why Natalie Bowman? Why, why, but really all those questions are why not Esther Reed? But at this point, she hadn't been Esther Reed in name or otherwise in years. In that time, she'd crisscrossed the country, had a few different boyfriends, gone to college, or started to anyhow. And by the spring of 2006, Esther was really settling into her identity as Brooke Henson, She was in her second year at Columbia. She had taken out some student loans in Brooke's name to help pay for school. She had obtained a copy of Brooke's birth certificate. And with that, she had applied to get a U.S. passport in Brooke's name. And by the way, yeah, that's a federal crime. She had her challenges at Columbia. Sometimes her social anxiety was so bad, she'd just hole up inside her room. But then she started seeing a mental health professional for the first time, and it really helped. Things didn't work out with Ian, but she was in a new relationship. She says she had supportive friends who genuinely cared about her. She had an apartment, two dogs, and at that moment, happily ever after seemed, well, possible. You may be thinking, really? She thought this was going to work? And the short answer is, yeah. It never occurred to me, quite frankly, that I I would get caught or could get caught or that anyone would get hurt. I mean, I figured if I, you know, lived as Brooke for the rest of my life, nothing would ever happen. And that's when the phone rang with the New York City Police Department on the other end, asking if she really was Brooke Henson and all those other probing questions and if she'd take the DNA test. And then finally, that moment on the street with the cops at her doorstep and the U-Haul idling by the curb. Then that narrow window of opportunity when the police seemed to walk away for a moment, leaving her just enough time to grab her bags and her two dogs and run for it. Initially, she did what all fugitives do when they're fleeing New York. She went south to Jersey. And from there, once again, she vanished. 
The funny thing about wanting to vanish is it only really works sometimes. Occasionally, someone just disappears and is forgotten. But other times, the strategy backfires big time because the act of vanishing is so mysterious and creepy that it actually calls attention to itself. Truth is, we love vanishing stories of a certain type, especially if they're about celebrities or people who vanish in a dramatic fashion. Just think Amelia Earhart, D.B. Cooper, Jimmy Hoffa, even Aaron Burr's daughter, Theodosia Burr, who disappeared in 1813. Google her. People are still talking about where she went. Point is, you vanish or you run for it? Well, that's catnip for law enforcement, like the Secret Service or the U.S. Marshals or even the Traveler's Rest PD. It's also catnip for the media because it asks the question, screams it really, why are you running? And what don't we know about you? If I hadn't run, I don't think any of this would have happened. Next time on Deep Cover. I mean, there are a lot of people stealing names, but something dealing with espionage, spies, that was a fascinating, fascinating development and opened my eyes. Cover is produced by Amy Gaines and Jacob Smith. It's edited by Karen Shikurji. Mastering by Jake Gorski. Our show art was designed by Sean Carney. Original scoring and our theme was composed by Luis Guerra. Fact-checking by Arthur Gompertz. Special thanks to Mia Lobel, Greta Cohn, and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Jake Halpern. Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health. With their flexible online programs, you can receive the comprehensive education you need to care for your loved ones or step into the thriving field of natural health. Why choose Trinity? Because their programs offer more than just coursework. You'll interact with experienced instructors, connect with like-minded peers, and even participate in optional live events to hone your skills. If you've ever thought about becoming a certified natural health professional, the CNHP program at Trinity School of Natural Health is the perfect certification course. You'll equip yourself with the knowledge and skills to make a real difference in the lives of others. Turn your passion for natural health into a rewarding career. Visit trinityschool.org today to learn more about the Certified Natural Health Professional Certification Program. Go to trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Trinity School of Natural Health. Transform your life. Transform the world.
Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.